Three months ago, there weren't enough masks. We were desperately sourcing from all over the world. People were making face coverings from scarves and bits of fabric. Now there are plenty of masks, but some people don't want to wear them. Come on, mask up America. Brought to you by the Ed Council. The organizer of the foot race was Charles C. Pyle. Flamboyant and flashy, Pyle was known as the P.T. Barnum of sports promotion. We have runners from all over the world. You can see them along the line, and they'll all walk and run but myself. I'll ride. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. The Route 66 Highway Association offered Pyle a $60,000 contract to run the race down Route 66, the main street of America. Pyle spent $25,000 on a personal touring coach, the America. He spent another $25,000 on a bus for race officials. Pyle explained his grandiose plan. We'll get a big field of famous runners. We'll race them through hundreds of towns. Each town will be assessed so much by me for advertising or we won't run through it. Then we'll sell a million programs. Easy. I'll make money on that too. In fact, it's about the easiest thing I've ever seen. It's May 26, 1928, and Bunyan Derbyists, who started it in Los Angeles 84 days earlier, enter New York and the end of a 3,000-mile walk. 55 contestants are close to the finish now. And in Madison Square Garden, they swivel hip several turns around the track before breaking the tape. And the winner is Andrew Payne of Claremore, Oklahoma. The first prize, $25,000. Behind Andy, Johnny Salo, the shipyard worker from New Jersey, placed second. Philip Granville, the Canadian walking champion, came in third. After racing through hundreds of towns and selling thousands of race programs, Pyle is broke. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, let's get this show on the road, shall we? How are you doing, everybody? My name is Tim Hanlon. It's Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for coming by. It's our 200th episode. Holy mackerel is all I can say. Nothing uh, necessarily special uh, planned in this episode, although the uh, the topic is unique and, uh, I, you know, is indicative of uh, some of the things that we like to kind of uh, it's a detour around or to. Uh, in our uh, collective journeys into things such as defunct teams and leagues. We also love uh, to kind of relish in various forms of professional sports uh, in the realm of events, uh, things that uh, may have been one-time onlys or very short-lived uh, series, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, even, frankly, the uh, the places in which uh, said events might have taken place. Uh, we, we've... Uh, Done many episodes on old stadiums and arenas and that kind of stuff. Uh, this week is uh, very much in that category for sure. And uh, our guest this week is uh, the author of a fantastic book. His name is Jeff Williams. And the book, uh, as you sort of got a hint at at the uh, the clip there at the top of the show, 
uh, is around uh, a, a unique uh, and uh, arguably very head-scratching event uh, that occurred in 1928 as well as also in 1929. Uh, and we'll get to sort of the uh, idiosyncrasies around that uh, in a few moments with uh, Jeff Williams, our guest this week. Uh, the book he has written is called C.C. Piles, Amazing Foot Race, the true story of the 1928 coast-to-coast run across America. Now, uh, what is this? Okay, this is uh, a, uh, a story about a competition, a literal foot race across the country that was uh, known as officially as the Trans-American Foot Race, informally, more popularly, as the Bunyan Derby. Now, this was a, a foot race uh, put together by a guy by the name of Charles C. Pyle, CC for short, nicknamed Cash and Carry Pyle. Now, we'll get into whether that was an affectionate or derisive uh, nickname uh, coming up. But uh, this is a fascinating character who was very much involved in sports and sports promotion uh, in many respects, C.C. Pyle, uh, the avatar for what is today uh, a profession known as the, the sports agent. C.C. Pyle was effectively the first modern day sports agent. Now, some would say huckster, some would say PR guy, uh, some would argue sort of, you know, P.T. Barnum-esque. Um, that's, those are not individually all uh, applicable, although I guess you could shake vigorously and sort of come up with this interesting character, C.C. Pyle. It was his idea in the late 20s, uh, the roaring 20s, just before uh, it all sort of came crashing literally and figuratively to a halt, uh, to put on this spectacle, this cross-country foot race challenging men. I don't think women were allowed to uh, uh, to participate. So, you know, we're talking about clearly another generation for sure. Uh, but this was literally a 3,000-plus-mile uh, event where, for cash prizes, uh, the top 10 uh, finishers that uh, ran the trek in 1928 from Los Angeles to New York City, ending in Madison Square Garden, of all places, um, would win fabulous cash prizes. Uh, and C.C. Pyle, uh, essentially learning from uh, his uh, own uh, uh you know, pioneering efforts in uh, wasn't even a thing at the time, sports agentdom, uh, cutting his teeth with a, one Red Grange. He of uh, the American football scene in the 1920s uh, basically uh, created a brand for, for Grange uh, and essentially translated him from a, a college football phenomenon to uh, a uh, more than that, as uh, a member of the Chicago Bears and, and not only playing for the team, but uh, uh, barnstorming and, and and personal appearances and, and all kinds of uh, uh, things using the uh, the Red Grange name and, and uh, an aura uh, stuff we remember today. That was all cash and carry piles doing. C.C. Pyle was the guy, the sort of chief cheerleader and uh, uh, opportunity seeker and finder. Uh, for Red Grange, also a, uh, a very famous French tennis player at the time, Suzanne Lenglen, uh, who uh, was uh, a Wimbledon winner, multiple uh, uh, U.S. Open appearances and, and, and success. That was back in the day when they those were inhabited only by amateurs. 
And C.C. Pyle, back in the roaring 20s, when all kinds of crazy stuff was going on, uh, you know, flagpoles sitting and uh, dance marathons and all that stuff. Hey, why not create a professional circuit for tennis players? That, too, a pioneering thing by C.C. Pyle. So, by the way, this is a guy also who created for for us, uh, uh, you know, sports history aficionados. He was also the founder of... um, uh, a very short-lived league, the original American Football League in 1926. Uh, he was the founder as well as a team owner of three of those teams, the Boston Bulldogs, the Chicago Bulls, and the Los Angeles Wildcats, and yes, even the original New York Yankees football team, which uh, started in the AFL, which collapsed uh, relatively quickly after one season, a challenger to the uh, still-fledgling uh, National Football League, which arguably got its start around 1920 or so. Uh, but the New York Yankees actually was the sole, I think, the only team that survived. Uh, well, I wouldn't call it a merger, but jumped from the AFL to the NFL. Um, and yes, the New York Yankees were a football team as well as the New York Yankees baseball team. C.C. Pyle was behind all that stuff. Hard to believe, right? Well, certainly it seems that uh, this is a guy if anybody is going to create a spectacle around something like a foot race around the, you know, across the country, and this is something that takes place over a couple of months, you know, is going to stop at various uh, towns and cities along the way, lots of publicity. Uh, this is a guy, even you will find out later with our conversation with Jeff Williams in just a few moments, uh, he, he, he bought a bus and, and created a, a rolling radio transmitter, even before radio was kind of a big thing. And he would literally do broadcasts from the road. I mean, he was arguably he was the inventor of the radio prom- promotion or the radio uh, a remote. Um, this is a character and then some uh, CC pile. Um, but we're going to really spend most of our time with Jeff uh, talking about this. Uh, I think you could call it signature event in CC Pyle's life. Despite all those crazy things, this foot race, the Bunyan Derby, as it was uh, uh, known, um, uh, the Trans-American Foot Race, uh, and, and we're going to get into all of it. It's just ama- the people who got drawn to participating in this. Fascinating stories. Uh, why Pyle was intrigued with this idea. The uh, the ease with which he would uh, he suspected he would be able to make money off of this proposition. The promotional opportunities. He uh, launched this around the same time the uh, the Mother Road, Route 66, was officially uh, coming online. And perfect timing because this was a, a road race, a foot road race, uh, that uh, the, the first part of which, the first uh, arguably two-thirds of which, actually would run and, and simultaneously promote Route 66, the Los Angeles to Chicago portion. Uh, all kinds of crazy roads and, and infrastructure challenges from Chicago's uh, points eastward to, to New York. Uh, we'll get to that, too, as well. And then and then again, um, you know, who is this guy? Where is the money coming from? Would he pay off? Um, but the, the amazing stories of the people who decided they were going to try for this uh, are heartbreaking, uh, noble uh, people trying to pay for, you know, uh, things like education and their parents uh, mortgages and, and all kinds of other uh, situations and, and rationales uh, for running this race. But this is what it was. Again, it was called the Trans-American Foot Race, i.e. the, or AG, also known as, sorry, there you go, uh, the Bunyan Derby. We're going to get into that fascinating sports story from 1928 and 1929 with our guest this week, Jeff Williams, the author of 
C.C. Pyle's Amazing Foot Race, the book. Fascinating stuff. Coming up in just a few moments. This is a truly special conversation in just a few moments. Uh, one sponsor that we'll highlight this week and uh, get on to the proceedings. Let's try Streaker Sports. Streakersports.com. That's the place to go. They call themselves the purveyors of sports culture. And once you go to Streakersports.com and check it, check out all the great stuff that they've got, you'll see immediately why. All kinds of great stuff. So well, let's start uh, probably with the meat of the matter, uh, the defunct leagues section. Uh, Roller Hockey International. How about the ABA, the WHA, the uh, Western Hockey League? How about the North American Soccer League? How about the major indoor lacrosse league? Remember the World Football League? How about pro beach hockey? Maybe even the International Hockey League and more. All these great leagues uh, commemorated. Uh, USFL, did I mention them? Uh, just about every team in all of those leagues in great, uh, comfortable, uh, well-crafted T-shirt form. All kinds of amazing stuff. Uh, you a fan of the, the movie Slapshot? Sure. Hey, you want to remember uh, some of the founding years of some of your favorite current sports franchises? They've got those, too. You in the Caddyshack? They got that, too. How about the Onions collection? The Bill Raftery trademark? All kinds of great stuff, but both uh, classic and ongoing. Uh, you name it. Uh, it's uh, sports uh, culture at its finest and uh, great T-shirts and, and other stuff, too at uh, our pals at uh, streakersports.com. Streaker Sports, the purveyors of sports culture. And don't forget, once you're uh, finding uh, the, the amazing stuff that you want to uh, put into your cart, uh, make sure that you add the promo code GOODSEATS uh, in that cart to get 15% off all of your purchases uh, when you go there early and often. Again, streakersports.com. Uh, and promo code is GOODSEATS for 15% off all of your purchases uh, we thank Streaker Sports for their sponsorship of the show, and we thank you for uh, checking them out and uh, uh, and obliging us uh, and them uh, with your time and hopefully your uh, your hard-earned dollars. So some great, great stuff. All right, let us uh, move uh, casually and uh, comfortably, shall we, uh, into a uh, dynamic and fantastic and, and uh, just a, 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 a raft of, of knowledge to come. In our conversation, here it is with Jeff Williams. We're going to talk about this amazing foot race, the Bunyan Derby from 1928 and a little bit of 1929. The C.C. Pyle created uh, extravaganza, a cross-country foot race. It is fascinating to no end. And here's our conversation we had just last week. As always, please enjoy. This little silly show has been like obsessively focused on uh, various situations, I guess, in pro sports, largely U.S. and, and North American, and intrigued by largely things like defunct teams and leagues that have sort of come and gone. And and interestingly, as we'll kind of allude to a little bit in this in this story, right? There is a little bit of overlap with that sort of let's say classic forgotten sports kind of uh, dynamic. If we can even take the liberty of doing that as say calling it that after three years of this this, this pursuit um but I you know I we're also fascinated by you know things that are related that that tend to be more shall we say shall we say situational or event driven um that barely weren't part of leagues or teams or whatever um because that's also part of the the uh the sports landscape and and a lot of those things we just keep un unraveling into just more and more intrigue about stuff i never knew about th this kind of uh event uh regardless of the timing of it right i mean just the idea of being able to 
you know, uh, make a profit or, or, or make a promotion out of a three plus thousand mile run literally across the country. I mean, it just seems borderline insane. But yet, indeed, it was a real thing. And then some. And uh, before we get to it, though, give me some background about you. Like, how did you stumble across this this topic? What's your profession? Was it just sort of a general interest in uh, personally? Uh, you're a runner by tra- what? What's your like? How did you even stumble across this story? Uh, well, I am. Um, I'm a freelance you know, journalist, and I mean, in terms of stumbling on the story, I think I was like 30, or I'm 51. So, you know, it was probably at least 20 years ago. I might have been in my 20s. Now they think about it, I was. Um, so I was somewhere in my 20s, and I remember I was on my parents' sofa, probably, you know, some visiting them, and I was reading a reference book, and it was probably a page and a half in this reference book that mentioned, you know, the Bunyan Derby. That's the nickname, you know, for the race. And, um, I just I, I read about it and like you I was like what 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 you know this how this was something that really happened and um, anyway I was just I, I was just mesmerized by the story I mean I, I read a little about it and it just captured my imagination immediately uh, with you know the idea of running across the entire country and winning you know this cash prize. And then just the fact that it was in the 1920s, 1928, before sneakers, before, not before paved roads, but paved roads were like a new thing. And, um, you know, they were running on dirt roads and gravel. And it just sounded, it just sounded magical. And I mean, magical in terms of a story. And I guess what I loved was I was like, Nobody's heard of this. I was like, yeah, I mean, yeah, this writer has in this reference book, reference book, but I, I really felt like I was discovering something, and I just thought this, this would make a great book. And at the time, I didn't have a book. I mean, I wasn't an author, um, but I just kept thinking I've got to do this as a book at some point. I think maybe five or six years later, I finally, you know, found an agent and and pitched it. And pitched a lot of book ideas, but she liked that one, and I loved that one, and so suddenly I'm I'm doing it anyway. I'm I don't know if I'm rambling. No, that's it. so. I mean, what, what was what do you what was the sort of what what do you what was the hook that kind of drew you in? Was it the the sport? Was it the the Roaring Twenties? Right. This is obviously just before you know, kind of the beginnings of the Great Depression and, and that that came after. Was it? Um, uh, America at the time, uh, what was the hook uh, that made, or is it just sort of a spark that just you can't define? Well, it, it, I mean, that was the spark, you know, just reading about it. And then as I started doing research on it more and more, I mean, I just fell in love with everything. I definitely fell in love with the time. I mean, the 1920s, the roaring 20s were far more interesting than I realized. Uh, you know, growing up, you you know, you see a little about it, but I, I really never paid a lot of attention to it. And I guess like with anything, I, I just started, um, when I, when I started doing research, even before I knew it was going to be a book, I just started thinking like, well, how did this happen? I mean, I wound up researching, you know, the history of shoes, the history of, uh, podiatry, um, the history of you know roads I, and just, and just kind of everything, and then what I realized at some point and found was that um, 
you know, this this race didn't just happen one day where C.C. Pyle, the guy who started this, um, you know, he didn't just wake up one day and say, oh, I think I'm going to do this race. This was all part of the endurance competition fad, um, which is something I, I really didn't know that much about growing up either. I, I'd heard of dance marathons, but you know, there was that one movie, uh, They Shoot Horses, Don't They?, with uh, Jane Fonda in the 1970s. Or no, 1969, I think. Anyway, I, I'd heard of that. But again, all of this was, I just barely knew anything about it. So I would just keep digging. And, and you know, a lot of this was general history that I just didn't know. But as I was learning about it, I, I just gripped me. I mean, they had, you know, flagpole sitting was a big thing. Um, it's all sort of, I mean, if you, in the 1920s, you know, they just finished World War One, and and they had their own pandemic, and of course, and the you know, the influenza, and where you know millions of people died, and so by the 1920s, when all that is over, I think people just really wanted to have fun, and the economy started coming back, and people were you know had I mean weekends were more of a thing, you know, for a long time in the 1800s, you know, you were working. Saturdays and and maybe at Sunday Sundays off, but anyway, so 1920s you've got a lot of leisure time and people are excited and happy and they want to have fun, and so people I mean you know they start doing things like the dance marathons and the first one I think was I don't know how long you know we'll just say 20 hours and so people are like wow that was really cool we should do another one and you know let's make it 30 hours and then suddenly it's like let's make it two weeks and you know and so this all sort of fed off another you know one guy sits on a flagpole ship ship shipwreck kelly was uh, uh, I can't remember Alvin I think was his first name but anyway he you know sits on his flagpole and other people are like well I can do that longer and and then Shipwreck Kelly is like well I want to keep my my uh, uh, reputation as the best flagpole sitter so he does it again and longer and all that and suddenly people are like you know well I could do this as a competition and so you had rocking chair mar- rocking chair marathons eating competitions skipping rope competitions. I think there was a talking competition where people would just talk as long as they could, you know, for like three days or whatever. They often had breaks, like with the dance marathons, um, to and, and really these little breaks, you know, like five minutes, an hour, something like that. It was so, you know, you could eat, uh, you know, go to the restroom, maybe take a little quick nap. And that allowed you to do these marathons longer. And, you know, so you'd be going on for days at a time and, and all of this. So this was kind of the, the world we had um, when C.C. Pyle came up with his idea for a, a cross-country, you know, foot race. I mean, it would be the endurance competition to end all endurance competitions. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, clear. I was born in the wrong decade, right? Uh, it just sounds like a hell of a lot of fun. I mean, a lot of arguably leisure time and stuff, and 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 the extremes of that. I it, it seems to me it almost has like uh, some haunting uh, overlap with uh, what I guess was the sort of um, endurance component of bicycle racing as well. Uh, the big sort of indoor Madison Square Garden kind of thing where you just go round and round and around for uh, seemingly days on end. Um, it's fascinating, but I, that's it's interesting in that. That's also sort of the background for um, 
this guy who's central to all of this, C.C. Pyle, Charles was, I guess, his first name. Uh, but but more, I, I don't know if this is a, a derisive nickname or or one with admiration, but uh, effect, uh, known as cash and carry pile. I, I, to me, and I know you're not sort of a, a biographer of this pile guy, but he's obviously an intriguing figure. I just don't know. First of all, you can explain a little bit about sort of who and what he was. Uh, he's a promoter extraordinaire, um, but born from sort of sports, I guess almost the early template of what a, a sports um manager or, or agent uh, would be but he but I, he also it seems to me he also sort of bears some resemblance not necessarily physically to you know the the pt barnums of the world right sort of like showmanship but maybe even a little even more so i where where does so first of all who is this pile guy and then sort of where does he sit on the continuum of hucksterness hucksterism yeah uh <laughs> somewhere i guess between I don't want to get political, but, you know, P.T. Barnum and Donald Trump. I mean, I think that uh, Donald Trump would, and Pyle would get along in some ways. Um, but, um, but gosh, C.C. Pyle, I mean, I loved him as a character. I mean, I say character, he was a character for sure. Um, and, and you know, I, I, I think you can admire him in a lot of ways. I don't think he was a bad person. But he definitely, on his on the ethics scale, you know, he, you know, if he would often do things that probably weren't the best. Yeah, you know, um, he he was born in uh, 1882. He grew up in uh, Delaware, Ohio. His dad died when he was young. His dad was a reverend, and I'm sure that influenced him because I mean, Pyle was a showman, and you know, you can just imagine him sitting as a kid, you know, watching his dad you know, wow, the, the, the crowd, the, uh, the parishioners. And, um, so anyway, he, you know, he grew up in Delaware and he got into a sort of showmanship pretty early. I mean, he was like a high schooler when he actually, uh, organized a wrestling, wrestling match and a bicycle race, which, you know, you mentioned. And one of those, uh, the, the bicycle racers was Barney Oldfield, and three years later, this was in 1900 when he organized uh, the race, three years later, Barney Oldfield would go on to uh, be the first person who would uh, get into a car and uh, race a mile a minute. So, I mean, that's just kind of a nice little, you know, foreshadowing of what a C.C. Pyle would do. Now, the cash and carry, uh, you know, was it a compliment? Was it more admiration? I, I'd say, or, or was it an insult? I'd say it was both. Um, you know, if people admired Pyle. I mean, he really, you know, he'd come up with an amazing idea and he would, you know, see it out. And he was a, you know, a real innovator in like sports, uh, you know, in sports. But at the same time, you know, again, he, he was sort of shady and um, he was also, also often beset with financial problems and, uh, and, and certainly during the race. So he really was kind of just like Huckster. I think, I don't think he wanted to be necessarily. I mean, he, you know, his, the way he was going to make money through this race was brilliant. It just, it just didn't quite work. And instead of saying, you know, and, and I can't blame him for not like, I mean, you know, I mean, if, if you um, have this giant race across the entire country and, you know, it's going to last like three months you don't want to say after, you know, two weeks, yeah, it's really not working out. I'm not making the money you thought. 
this isn't going as well as, you know, it could. No, you know, you want to keep it going. So, and that was kind of his problem. But, um, but I'm sort of jumping ahead, I realize. But in, in terms of his life, he, uh, he went out west when he was 18 years old. Um, a doctor told him that he had a, I don't think I'm going to say this right, uh, pleurisy, I think, or pleurism. It was some sort of lung uh, disease, not a disease, but a condition. And his dad had it, and his dad died from it. So he decided to go out west, the young man. And um, so he goes out west for his health and uh, you know, takes a train, has some money, and you know, goes off there. And he's robbed like almost immediately. So he's in California. He's penniless. He, um, he's got to make some money somehow. Well, he thinks back to his, uh, you know, the bicycle race and the wrestling match. So he decides to organize a, a boxing match. And somehow he ends up, I guess he can't find anyone, to, you know, he can't find two boxers to do it, but he finds one old miner who is really, uh, you know, in terrible shape. So Pyle thinks, well, maybe I can fight him. So he decides to, you know, he's like 18, 19, in really bad shape, but this minor, you know, he's a senior citizen, oh, I'll get him. So he organizes this race, or sorry, boxing match, and um, and you would think who would want to see, you know, an 18-year-old, like, beat up, a, you know, a, an 81-year-old or whatever the guy was, he was probably 60. But, uh, but Pyle, uh, you know, as he often did, you know, just made it a big thing, promoted the heck out of it. And uh, people put money to see this, you know, match. And then Pyle gets into the boxing, you know, ring with the um, this old miner who's he's going to clobber. And uh, and then Pyle gets, you know, decked and beat up and learns, I guess, either later or during it that the miner is a former boxer and, you know, really knows how to throw a punch. Anyway, Pyle barely survives that. He does make some money off it, though. And then he goes off into Oregon, and uh, I, I won't give you every little detail of his life, but he becomes a, an advance manager for a theater troupe. So once again, you know, showmanship. And he goes off from town to town. He, he goes to towns before the theater troupe gets there, and he talks them up, and, oh, they're going to be amazing. You know, you've never seen anything like this. And and so he, you know, you start to see where he becomes, uh, well, you know, a, a showman. I mean, he, he, at this point, he's only in his, like, 20s. And then it's the night, night by the 19, by 1928, um, you know, he's, like, in his 40s and, you know, middle-aged. And and uh, I haven't even, we haven't been, be, begun to discuss his sports career. But yeah, that, um, that's And that seems to be pretty intriguing because I, who knows, like, specifically how he sort of got into the sports realm. But in many respects, it's almost sort of um, vanguard, right, in that, you know, in the 20s, obviously, just about everything was sort of, you know, flourishing and leisure time and all that stuff. But, you know, football, American football, which we a topic we've talked about for many, many episodes, right? You know, very uh, early days, pre-NFL or early NFL um you know, sort of uh, finding its footing and whatnot. Tennis, right? Uh, his uh, representation of a, a very famous uh, French tennis player at the time, Suzanne Lenguien, um, you know, who was uh, about as close to a, a, an international star. I, you know, I, it, uh, it seems to me that it's, it's, it's almost a perfect combination of this sort of thing of sports, right, which itself is a spectacle, right? Maybe even a little bit more uh broadly appealing to the masses if you will versus say mere theater right um and 
you know, uh, it it's it stands to reason. I mean, I I look at, you know, uh, the his uh, uh, his uh, lure, if you will, of um, um, uh, Mademoiselle uh, Lenguien, who uh, frankly was, I think, one of the, if not the first, uh, he put together sort of the first sort of professional uh, tennis tour in the United States, which is at the time very controversial. But you clearly get a sense that this is a guy, you know, who has a flair and a talent for what I guess today would be, I don't know, a promoter, uh, an agent, uh, some combination of the, uh, thereof. Yeah, I mean, he he basically created the whole uh, concept of um, being a sports agent. I mean, Jerry Maguire in the movie would have never happened without you know, C.C. Pyle, um, and, and basically he he came west and somehow wound up in Illinois. Um, by then, he was on his third wife. I mean, he had he had lived quite a life, and he was running a, a, a movie theater in the 1920s in Illinois, in Champaign, Illinois, when uh, Red Grange, um, who became obviously you know, huge football star. By the time he was in college uh, and and played an amazing game, and uh, I mean, I'm not. I mean, as you can probably tell, I'm not a sports guy, um, and I, I'll have to. I have to like go back to my own book to you know get some of the details. But but basically, Red Grange, you know, he did this amazing game, and and the whole crowd, you know, the whole country noticed and was like just like wow, you know, did you see Red Grange? So he Red Grange comes into the theater. And um, and CC Pyle's there, and you know, at this moment, CC Pyle is like this anonymous. I mean, nobody knows him. He's led a really colorful life. He's done a lot of things, but he's you know he's not really anybody. You know, he's not a certainly not a famous you know person. Um, but anyway, uh, CC Pyle takes Red Grange aside and oh son, can I talk to you? And and he talks about you know, what he can do for Red Grange's career. And, and sure enough, I mean, he gets him into professional football and and basically creates or, you know, helps create professional football and, and being a sports agent. And, and like you said, I mean, you know, he takes, yeah, yeah. He, I mean, he gets Red Grange into the movies. He, uh, he gets him uh, branding things. Suddenly you've got a sweater and, uh, Oh, I don't know. A lot of different uh, merchandise that uh, Red Grange started promoting. One, he promoted uh, cigarettes, even though Red Grange didn't smoke. But he, all he had to do was basically say, you know, well, if I were going to smoke, I'm sure I would like this brand. And so, you know, you got money for that. I mean, Pyle was just in, ingenious with, uh, you know, the way he could market. Yeah, Red Grange and then Susanna Lind, I can't even say her name the way you can. Lind, Lind Glenn, um, that's the Americanized way. But um, yeah, and she was quite a, a personality. I mean, she, uh, you know, a, a diva. Um, and uh, yeah, and I'm sure Pyle kind of created that in a way. He probably was like, you're amazing and, you know, you're a star and you should be treated as such. And so she became that. And, um, and kind of my theory is that, in a way, maybe he wanted to do this foot race. I mean, it, it's sort of weird because he he had, a, he had a very successful career as a sports agent with, you know, in, in football and tennis, and then suddenly he wants to do the foot race. And on one hand, I do think 
he just he wanted to capture what was going on in the country with endurance competitions. But at the same time, you know, Red Grange was the star, Suzanne was the star, but Cece Pyle with the race, he could kind of be the star. Um, I mean, the the race that he he uh, if I can say the yeah okay the 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 name of the race. I mean, it was long, but it was called Cece Pyle's first annual international transcontinental foot race. And of course, no sports writer wanted to say that. I mean, that was, you know, a mouthful. I mean, you couldn't say that. So somebody, when they heard about this foot race across America, thought of, you know, how your feet would hurt and all that. And so somebody came up with the Bunyan Derby. And sports writers just loved that. And so that stuck. And everyone called it the Bunyan Derby, and CeCe Pyle hated that, and probably in part because his name, you know, if they'd called it CeCe Pyle's Bunyan Derby, I still don't think he would have loved that. But at least his name would have been in there. But, um, but yeah, I think that's one of the reasons, too, why he gravitated to this uh, foot race, because his name was on it, and he could be kind of the showman and promote himself. Yeah, it's interesting because, and, and this is probably another topic for another day, but I mean, I, some people would even uh, credit him, frankly, well, he's essentially been an avatar, right, for uh, what today is sort of commonplace, right? I mean, he kind of made Red Grange, you know, almost like a brand name, right, in many respects, right? And very ahead of its time, and, and to a lesser extent, uh, uh, Suzanne Lenglet, Lenglet, I, you know, Lenglet, now you got me, I can't even say her name. Look it up, folks, L-E-N-G-L-E-N. Um, uh, Suzanne with two ends. Um, but it, um, it's also, I, I just, I, I guess the real big question I have as we sort of get into this is why we talked about sort of the, 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 uh, the excitement of, of endurance races and all that stuff, but, but why a foot race, right? I mean, he's been, he's been playing around literally and figuratively in football and tennis two you know, very popular sports sort of to different audiences. Um, but why foot racing versus say, some other endeavor, like what, some other sport activity. I, I just, I'm curious as to like, like what was the spark? Maybe you don't even know, but like, well, I, what, yeah, actually there's a funny, st- there is a funny story. I don't remember exactly the details, but about a year earlier, there was a, somebody, you know, there were always like wars and battles and all that. And some, somebody had to run from one, I think country to another, Basically, you know, and, and had to deliver a message, having related to some sort of war. I mean, it's in my book, and I don't, I don't even remember. But, but anyway, this guy, he was older, um, you know, probably 50 or some, 60, 68, 67. He was, you know, he's up there. Anyway, he ran like, you know, I'm just guessing because, again, I can't quite remember. But he ran like 50 miles or 60 miles. And when he came into the town with the message. People were cheering. And just, you know, they, I guess, you know, word got out, hey, somebody's running with a message. And so all these people are cheering and just so excited and all that. And C.C. Pyle hears about that and thinks, wow, that is amazing. You know, this old guy running, you know, you know for a good cause and all that. All these people are cheering. And wow, the guy didn't get any money for that. You know, he ran. He had, che- you know, crowded crowds, you know, cheering for him and no money. Well, C.C. Pyle just thought, that's terrible, you know. And so apparently that was, the, that was the spark. But I think there were a lot of, re- you know, again, you know, the endurance competition, he's trying to think of something unique. 
but he came up with this idea and the reason it was able to make money, um, the way he saw it and the way he planned it, and, and it did work to some degree, but you would run from town to town. You know, every day you basically ran like one to two marathons. I mean, you know, we're talking a marathon, 26 miles. People were running, you know, 20 to like 50 miles a day. And, you know, the way he structured this, but you'd run from like one city to another city, one town to, you know, another town. And he made sure that just about every time, you know, and then you would sleep for the night, you know, you kind of like the dance marathons, you had to have those five minute breaks to, so that, you know, people wouldn't completely pass out after say eight hours or, you know, or 18, they could go on for, you know, weeks. So, um, so people would, he would have you run, you know, from Los Angeles to, I can't remember the first town, but, you know, you'd run from town to town and you would sleep in tents and then get up the next day and you'd run again. Okay. And that doesn't sound like, you know, how do you make money off that? Well, he had um, a tent city put up for, for everybody to, you know, sleep in. And if you were, you know, if you're cheering, you know, you know that the Bunyan Derby is coming to your town, you're very excited and all that. Well, if you're willing, you, you'll you pay your little five cents or whatever to go into the tent city where you can meet the runners and see them. You can get some food. You can get some souvenirs. And so every, you know, it was kind of like a circus. I mean, the whole thing became like a circus. But but it was, you know, kind of like a circus. And um, and so, you know, you could go and, you know, see the sites. And then, of course, if you're a town, you know, you're a businessman, business. Well, there weren't a lot of business women back then, but you know, business owner, you could, uh, you know, you could promote, you could have, you know, a, a sale if, you know, if you sold shoes. I mean, that'd be perfect, you know, um, you know, advertise to the runner and the people in the town, and you know, have a discount, you know, on the shoes that you're selling. You know, a restaurant. Uh, I mean, you know, and people would come to these towns to see the runners, so it was good for business, and it was good for Pile, and then of course Pile made sure that every town, if you're going to host the runners that night, you're going to pay for it. So he made sure that the towns were giving him money, you know, to host these things. So, and then of course he, you know, would, um, you know, brand it in other ways too, and just become a huge, huge, I mean, the way he figured, you know, huge celebrity. And, and he planned on running these races every year. And, um, and yeah, he just became this, thought he'd uh, be this huge, uh, it would, you know, he basically thought he was inventing a sport, kind of like he was helping to invent, you know, professional football and professional tennis. Just didn't quite work out that way. We don't have a lot of, I mean, you know, you've got races, of course, in the Olympics and all that, but transcontinental foot races aren't really a thing anymore. Well, I, it, it, it's endlessly fascinating, but it also overlaps, though, uh, as I did my sort of uh, cursory research for this, with with some mm-hmm. other uh, some other major sort of development going on infrastructure wise in the United States, and that you alluded to it earlier, which is sort of the the paving of roads, and in particular, and I, I'm just really curious as to sort of which came first, sort of this idea or uh, the marketing behind. Uh, a just completed uh, Route 66. Um, you know, I, I'm wondering who found whom uh, for this because it, this is part of the story too. It's almost uh, almost kismet, if you will, uh, between 
sort of mutual uh, uh, desires here. Uh, Pyle, you know, from his own sort of uh, stepping out and in in, in running his own and developing and creating his own new thing, um, just seems to be convenient that uh, this this mother road, this brand new gleaming, uh, uh, you know, stretch of asphalt between Chicago and Los Angeles uh, was also kind of getting off the ground, so to speak. Yeah, and and that was a big part of why he decided to run on that. I mean, you know, he had kind of this this great roads he could, you know, could use and uh, and promote, and the people you know behind the highway were happy to have, you know, to bring attention to it, and um, you know, but un- unfortunately for Pyle, the the road wasn't, uh, you know, it didn't go across the entire country, and. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to remember. Uh, that's one of where you know I sort of blank out on that. Um, but uh, yeah, but, but yeah, still, I mean, it, it's, it would ima- I would imagine it would give him though, right, a uh, an enormous head start, right? Because it's just like uh, to your point, right? This is sort of hey, look, I can get all these different cities and towns along that road at least. That I pretty much don't have to worry as much about that one because I'll have a partner, if you will. To right, exactly, sort of, and you know, and, the rest. And and a lot of the roads back then, you know, were not paved. I mean, were dirt roads, and and and, and the runners indeed actually ended up running a lot of on a lot of dirt roads and gravel and mud, and then of course it snowed on them, so they're running in snow. But so yeah, to have Route 66, you know, a paved road for a lot of the trip was, uh, you know, was wonderful, and then just yeah, like you said, Kismet, and it worked out really well. And it's just a fun part of, you know, Route 66's history now. I mean, you know, they had the TV show at some point, and starts off, you know, with the race, and it's just, uh, you know, it's it's just yet another, I think, really colorful aspect of this whole race. I mean, it it's just an amazing story. I mean, I think. Um, I mean, in, in shoes, you know, we haven't even talked about that. But, I mean, 1928, you didn't, ex- I mean, sneakers, they existed. They were like kids, but, um, but they weren't, you know, they weren't popular and they, there weren't a lot. I mean, you know, it just wasn't a thing, you know, where you had to really work hard to find sneakers. So for the most part, you just you didn't have a lot of running shoes and the people who showed up, you know, to run this race. I mean, there were people in there were at least one guy in work boots. There were barefoot runners, um, which I can't even imagine. Um, and, you know, and then just a lot of people running in just regular, you know, hard sold shoes and, and those would wear out a lot. And so you would have to, you know, from town to town, you'd have to buy new pairs of shoes. And I can't even, you know, that was another thing that I just loved. I mean, as a teenager, I tried running, I think I was on the track team for, you know, one year and I had, you know, I'd done, I'd done enough running to know that I kind of, kind of liked it sometimes and kind of hated it. And I just had so much respect for these people who, you know, decided to enter this. Um, because again, you know, you're running like the equivalent of one or two marathons a day. So, so and a lot who, of are it, these, who are these mm-hmm. people? Like what, where is he? I mean, he got almost 200 people for this first race in 1928 i who gets i'm trying to get inside the head of like who would be attracted to this why and and frankly how and where they're sort of coming from to kind of just you know go for this crazy stunt 
that that's the most fun i think part of this whole story i mean and and that i mean you know i mean again i was i was sold from the beginning but when i started researching the people who did this i just fell in love with this whole story um there were 199 men cc pile did say no no women can't do it i it, it just at that time they didn't believe a woman could run, you know, like, I mean, you know, I mean, they knew they could run, but they just didn't think they had the endurance, which was insane and crazy. And, and it took until like the 1960s when, I mean, that's when, oh, I can't remember, Bobby Gibb, I think was her name. And that's a really neat story if you want to do that sometime. But, um, but uh, you know, a woman uh, posed, didn't pose as a man, but she used her initial I think like B Gibb or, you know, again, I'm not quite sure what her name was, but she, um, you know, basically everybody thought she was a man when she entered and then she enters it and then people try to stop her because they're like, oh, you know, women aren't allowed in this. So anyway, 199 men in uh, the Bunyan Derby and their ages from 15 to 63. And the 15-year-old lied about his age because he thought, they're not going to let me you know, do this. So he said he was 16, and they were like, oh, okay. Um, he had just turned 15. And, and that's a neat story, too. I should tell you about that, that kid. But anyway, ages 15 to 63, most of them are in their 20s, but they're you know 30s and 40s as well. And, and, uh, and they were you know, white, black. There were four black men. There were Native Americans quite a few uh, European runners. So you had people from all over. But what's really kind of, I think, just poignant about the whole thing, C.C. Pyle to get, well, I mean, at first he wanted professional runners. That's what he thought he would get, you know, the most, the world's elite runners. Um, he started having trouble with that. So then he was just like, oh, okay, anybody can, you know, anybody who can run, as long as you're a man, come on, you know, you know your money's good here. Um, but he, but Pyle did uh, do a contest. It was a contest, and you got a twenty-five thousand dollar prize. Whoever you know came in first, and then you had ten thousand for the second, and five thousand for third place, and I think a thousand to the rest. To the uh, that's sorry, the top ten runners, not everybody. So, I mean, that was a lot, as you can imagine. I mean, twenty-five thousand dollars in uh, nineteen twenty-eight in today's dollars would be over three hundred thousand dollars. So, I mean, you're talking a lot of money. So, naturally, I mean, it brought in like everybody from you know just people who were not really thinking this through, like the guy who wore the you know the work boots. Um, to people who were really pretty desperate. And like the 15-year-old, um, his name, I let's see here, Toby Joseph Cotton. Um, I just had to think for a second. Anyway, Toby Joseph Cotton, he was a, a black uh, boy um, from teenager from uh, uh, Cleveland, I, I think, somewhere in Ohio. And anyway, his dad was a paraplegic, and um, and he had six brothers and, you know, his mom, his dad was a mechanic until he, you know, got injured and, and then, you know, couldn't do his job. So they were in really bad shape. And so Toby wanted to win that $25,000 for his family. And they thought, well, you know, maybe you could do this. But the problem was for everybody, they all had to give a $125 entry fee. 
which isn't quite as bad as it sounds. You know, like I think when I first heard about it, I thought, oh, God, C.C. Pyle, you know, he wants, he's going to make money off the runners in this way. But actually, um, if you, once you finished, you didn't even have to finish the race. Once you dropped out, they would give you $100 of that 125 and that was your way to get back home. So you had travel money. So if you're running from you know, California to New York, but you give up in Missouri, well, you've got a hundred bucks, you know, good luck. So anyway, Toby and his family, uh, you know, they managed to raise the money and they drove out, you know, from Ohio to, uh, to Los Angeles and, you know, and, and he ran in the thing. And, um, I, so you had just a lot of, I mean, you know, unemployed people who, somehow managed to raise this money. I mean, I can tell you some of the stories about other, some of the others, but, um, but yeah, just a lot of, a lot of desperate people, because even though we think of the great depression as, and it was, you know, from being 1929 to the thirties in 1928, it wasn't, you know, there was hints of what was to come and there was a recession in the farm farming community. And, you know, there were just, there were enough people, you know, there's still plenty of people who, you know, twenty five thousand dollars would have been a game changer, life changer, and so yeah, that it just drew a lot of interesting people to this race. You think? You think Pyle had any sort of worries about sort of like the health and the safety of these of these guys? And and you know, this is an ultra endurance thing. I mean, I you know, it's one thing to run a marathon. You know, uh, it's it's another thing to run like two of them per day times how many days. I mean, exhaustion, medical health, uh, you, you know, I, insurance. I mean, how do you, you know, um, or does he just kind of kind of go for it? And he just doesn't sort of I, I can't, you know, as a, if you're a businessman, right, it just cries risk uh, all over the place. Right. But it doesn't seem like he's taking that too much into account. Well, I think on one hand, you know, you had the endurance fads going on and everybody else was doing it. So he probably thought, well, you know, I can too. I mean, there were some people who, I mean, yeah, I, you know, if you're dancing for uh, two weeks, I mean, that's, that's a lot. And, but he did have a, uh, he had some sort of medical staff. I mean, I think one doctor or something like that on staff and he, uh, you know, he would, he had, he arranged it so people you know, would be able to eat at the tent city and all that. He had a, a chef who wasn't very good, and then he started giving out any meal tickets to, uh, you know, so they could eat at the restaurants, which, you know, the cities, you know, towns doing this liked. He did, uh, yeah, I mean, he wasn't a monster. I mean, I will definitely say that. He, I think he, you know, he didn't want people to get injured and all that. On the other hand, um, you know, he, well, one of the, okay, one of the, the, uh, runners at some point dropped out and he, uh, he brought him on. He, he hired him. His name was Arthur Newton and he was a professional runner and just a, you know, one of the elites. Well, he hires Arthur Newton to become sort of his, uh, you know, a coach. So there would be runners because, well, a lot of runners were dropping out and, you know, he wanted, that wasn't good for business. I mean, he expected people to drop out and that's fine. It probably might've been bad for business, you know, if everybody was running um, and nobody dropped out, you know, no excitement and all that, but you know, he, yeah, he wanted people to finish. Otherwise, you know, you could, you could have the race end, you know, in the middle of the country. 
because the last person drops out. So anyway, he hires Arthur Newton, and you'd have people who would have, you know, splinchants and, you know, uh, corns and maybe their knee is starting to give out. And Arthur would talk to him and be like, you know, you're not that bad, right? I mean, you know, you can, you can do it. You know, come on, you've come all this way. And so anyway, Arthur would talk them into, you know, continuing. So, yeah, you know, I mean, Pyle, I think, you know, did what he could to keep them healthy, but he also did what he could to keep them running every day. And um, so, yeah, as I said, he was, you know, kind of a shifty guy. Well, there's also a lot of promotion along the way, too. There's a great picture uh, in, in some of the research that I did of, uh, you know, another, I think, pioneering thing where he uh, he hired or, or helped build out a, uh, I guess it was called at the time, a portable broadcast station, obviously radio at the time, where he would be basically announcing uh, each evening sort of what sort of transpired, uh, I guess, during that course of that day. And, and obviously, you know, in the truck, that that itself is, it's almost like the, uh, the, uh, the uh, the avatar for the uh, radio remote promotion uh, that uh, we sort of know today, like come down to the car dealership for you know, and get some free stickers or something. Right. Um, uh, how how else was he promoting this? Because I got to think that the newspapers in each of these towns as this race was uh, before, during and after were just uh, sort of eating this up as sort of a, a, as a major event for them. Oh, they were. And I mean, that's where I got a lot of my research. I mean, I did do things like uh, traveled to Oklahoma and stayed at the house, actually, of one of the runner's kids who, I mean, she had a guest house and let me stay there and, uh, you know, looked through scrapbooks. And I mean, I interviewed a lot of the kids of the runners because the runners, I don't think anybody was alive when I was doing this. But um but yeah, the newspapers were all over this, and um, and he he just he promoted it in every way that he could. But he wound up having a lot of financial problems. So, I mean, like Albuquerque didn't want to pay, um, you know, whatever whatever it was that you know Pyle wanted, and so Pyle was like, "All right, fine, we're not running through Albuquerque." So on the way, I mean, you know, he had this whole thing mapped out, and then suddenly he's like, okay, not doing Albuquerque, we'll stay this one place, and, you know, whatever it was, you know, I think was like a, a, a mountain or something, you know, where there was no town. Um, so he didn't make it, you know, he made no money probably that night. There, um, By the time he started off in a big camper, luxury camper, which 1928, you know, I mean, that was a huge, big, you know, new thing. And uh, by the time somewhere in the middle of the race, he loses the camper because he can't make the payments. So, um, you know, he he wound up having a lot of financial grief on the strip. So by the end, I mean, he was he was doing everything he could just to keep it going, you know. Um, And one of the big problems that he had or one of the things that he should have rethought was starting off in California. If he had started off in New York the the terrain you know it's quite nice and the weather's you know fine and all that he started people running you know they're running through the mountains and the desert and so by the time people got to Arizona you know there were a lot of people who had dropped out there were a lot of people who dropped out that first day or two they're running up a mountain and you know work boots I mean I think that guy the work boots guy lasted a little while but um you know running barefoot uh you know a lot of people had problems so, yeah, I think if he had started off in New York like he did, there was a second race in 1929, and that started off in New York. But, uh, yeah, I think he would have had 
might have had better luck if you, you know, rethought the route. But yeah, Route 66, and um, it just for him, I guess he he thought starting in L.A. would be a great idea. Are there any uh, uh, people that stood out uh, in your research um, from sort of the uh, from the runners uh, 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 group? Um, uh, some names that that you know I came across uh, that are just you know I either they were sort of uh, trying to prove a point or or make some money from a hard hard luck story. Uh, obviously, there was uh, a couple of angles of of, uh, of racism for some of the. Uh, uh, the African American and Native American racers, which uh, itself was a challenge, in addition to the the sheer endurance part of it, right, just makes it doubly hard. Um, any names of people that sort of stand out, sort of in the process, and, and the winner, uh, Johnny Sallow, the second year, but uh, uh, this guy Andy Payne, the first year. Uh, I'm just curious: is there any interesting or or odd or or unique stories in all of this, or is it just? Is it just like uh, an older version of maybe Survivor and just, you know, people from all over the place and they just kind of go for it because they have their own particular reasons? Well, both. I mean, uh, there are some great stories. Um, and, yeah, there are several standouts. Um, yeah, I mean, it is like the Survivor, like you said. I mean, just a, a motley group of people, you know, who don't have a lot in common in some ways. But, um, but yeah, everybody, I think, who ran in this had – some sort of interesting story. Ed Gardner, Gardner, who I think you mentioned, but or, you know, he was one of the four black runners in the race, and he had a lot of uh, racism directed at him. Um, uh, in McLean, Texas, an angry mob surrounded his, his trainer's car and threatened to burn it, claiming that you know blacks had no business racing against whites. And um, in uh, in Ed Gardner, by the way, came in eighth, so he did quite well. But uh, in western farm, Western Oklahoma, a farmer uh, had a shotgun, followed him, you know, for quite a while. Uh, I think the entire day, and just and oh, and daring him to pass a white man. So I assume that day didn't do as well running. But yeah, I mean, he Ed, I mean, was just had a lot of just terrible, unthinkable things. You know, just the, you can just imagine the epithets and all of that, and um, it's just terrible. But you know, as I said, he came in eighth, and he ended up doing great. Um, and then uh, Norman Cotalupi, I love his story. Um, he was 19 years old when uh, when he met Mary. Okay, um, they lived in Cleveland. They were both working in a mayonnaise factory. Now Mary was Hungarian, and Norman's family was Italian. And the Italians back then, um, you know, in the late 1920s, weren't too fond of Hungarians because they were on different sides in World War One. So Norman's family sends uh, him to California to live with an uncle and, and work there, and you know, get Mary out of the system. So he's working in California, and what does Norman hear about but this uh, this Bunyan Derby race? So he gets this idea. He's like, the race. It's going through Cleveland, you know, where I lived. So he's like, if I can, you know, raise $125, I've got a good excuse to go back to Cleveland. Now, of course, if he can raise $125, he could just travel there himself. But he thought, well, if you know, if I raise $125, bucks, um, I can, you know, I can run to Cleveland. I'll drop out. I'll get my $100, you know, for travel money, and then we can, you know, I'll use that as a nest egg, and I'll, you know, I'll marry Mary. 
So, I mean, talk about a reason, you know, for running this. I just loved it. Anyway, he runs and he makes it to Cleveland. But then he's like, I ran all this way and I'm going to stop. So he keeps going. But he does meet up with Mary. He gives her a piece of petrified wood that he picked up um, in the petrified forest in Arizona. And he gives it to her as a souvenir. And then he keeps running. And um, he ends up uh, finishing in 27th place. But he does marry Mary. And then, you know, they live in Cleveland, and he's got his own garage, and they have a happy life. And I just, I don't know. I love that story. Um, man, Mike Kelly, he was a, a stuntman, an amazing character. I mean, he didn't do too well, but uh, but I think he finished the race, if I remember. Um, and, and then he, it was kind of like after the race, Mike Kelly was like, well, now what? So I think he ran in the second race, but then he he kept doing things, um, you know, endurance fads. Even at, long after it was over, he kept doing them, and then finally he was killed doing some stunt. Um, but uh, you know, just amazing stuff. And then Andy Payne, you mentioned him. You know, he won the race, and that's where I, I wound up uh, spending the night, uh, like one or two nights in his daughter's guest home and looking through all the scrapbooks and everything. And the way he, he was, I hate to say this, I was thinking about it today, and I was like, it was kind of not as much fun to write about him because he was such a good person. Um, you know, you had Cece Pyle, who, you know, was shifty and all that, and then a lot of people with hard luck stories. And Andy Payne was, I mean, he was a, a teenager, I think 19 when he ran it, and and he had a great story too. He wanted to impress a, a, a girl that he liked, um, Vivian, and she was just like a year older. But um, she was his school teacher when he was um, in school, and so he couldn't, you know, couldn't ask her out. And she's older; she's only like six months older, you know, something like that. <coughs> Excuse me. But anyway, um, but he he goes out to run the race because he's thinking, well, if I win twenty five thousand dollars. Vivian, you know, maybe she'll notice me and like me and all that. And, and he wrote to her during the race and all that. And, you know, he ends up winning and then he ends up marrying her and, um, you know, and all that. And, 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 and then you would think, okay, wins this race, Andy Payne, you know, he's going to run, you know, and CC Pyle, very excited. Okay. Cause he's like, well, you know, Andy Payne, I'm going to be his agent and I'm going to make a lot of money off Andy Payne. So later, after the, the Bunyan Derby, C.C. Pyle organizes a big race, promotes it really heavily. It's between Andy Payne and another elite runner. And uh, so, you know, they run the race, and Andy develops some cramps, and he quits after 10 miles. And he never runs again. This is, you know, after running the entire country. So, um but and then hard. I don't know if you have more time. How much time? But Paul Hardrock, I could tell you about him. Sure. He was. Um, By the way, but before you before you mm -hmm. go about Payne, Payne was also he was also a, a Native American, right? He was a part of a, yes, a Cherokee yes. tribe. I mean, that's yeah, that's yep. even another. Yeah, I should mention that. Yeah, and yeah, that's a neat thing. And then later he becomes a member of the House of Representatives in Oklahoma. I mean, as I said, a really good person. I mean, like, he he was the opposite of, of C.C. Pyle. I mean, it really, you know, if you're going to look for, like, good good versus evil, you know, or, or good versus flawed evil, I would call, I would not call C.C. Pyle evil, but he he was a character. Um, but, yeah, Andy Payne just, I mean, led a great life, married a wonderful woman, had 
two kids, a son and a daughter, and just, you know, it's just this, uh, just a wonderful person from everything I've, you know, never got to meet him. I got to talk to his uh, wife briefly on the phone. She was in her 90s, and then she died before I, you know, came out to Oklahoma. But, you know, I met a lot of his family members, and yeah, he's just a wonderful guy. Um, so, but, uh, and then Paul Hardrock, if, if you want me to get into him, um, he, well, one, I was going to say it was funny because after the race, he becomes a mailman. So, you know, he walks for the rest of his career, but, um, but he, he made a name for himself, uh, before a name locally, he was from Burlington, uh, North Carolina, and he was a college student and he wanted, when he entered the race, and he wanted the $25,000 so he could, uh, you know, graduate and, you know, have college money. And somebody suggested that he try, well, you know, he had to raise the $125. And that was not easy. So somebody suggested that if he was a little more, you know, like famous, maybe people would chip in and all that. And so somehow they came up with this idea, because he was a really good runner, that he would race a horse. A pony, actually, named a pony named Maud, and so he ran this uh, this race with Maud, and um, and it wound up being like a seventy five mile race. I think they did it over three days because they didn't want to kill anybody, um, and uh, and so yeah, for like three days they they ran this race, and you would think that you know the pony would definitely come in, you know, be faster, but. Um, but I think each day, I and mean, it was almost like a tie. And finally, in the third day, Paul uh, hurt something, you know, one of his ligaments, and he had to drop out. But then they heard that, like, the horse was done, you know, just could not run anymore. And so they kind of declared it a tie. And then later, as, you know, people started telling the story, um, you know, they, somebody said, oh, the horse died. And, you know, and that became part of the legend. The horse pony did not die. But, um, but you know, it was just a great I mean, in Paul, you know, when he was training for the race, he was hit by a car. Uh, when he was running the race with Maud, um, he runs into a drugstore and grabs a thing of milk and just guzzles it and then says to the guy, my trainer's coming by in a car, you know, he'll pay for it. And then he runs and the drugstore owner, he's like, wow, you know, but he ends up giving it to him the milk on the house because he's just impressed, you know, with Paul Hardrock. Anyway, so many stories. I mean, it it's an amazing, just I don't know, just uh, human nature and human. Well, it's just a wonderful human interest story. So, so this this though, um, it ends up uh, in Madison Square Garden. I'm guessing there's uh, it's almost like a Milrose Games like thing where people kind of enter the stadium and they. They kind of run around a track yeah, and stuff and, and, and all that. Exactly, yeah. I, so, I mean, is the New York press all over this? I mean, are they just, uh, is this just like, you know, the, I got to think this is almost an exclamation, probably in his mind, Pyle, this would be sort of an exclamation point, right? Finishing in the, the major it, media market in the country and all that. Yeah, and what's so wild is it, it didn't do too well. I mean, the media, they were all over it. Um, but one, you know, you had everybody running through New York. And I think a lot of people just thought, and I really want to pay, you know, the entry fee to go into Madison Square Garden and watch these people run around a track for like, I don't know, 24 hours or 20, maybe it wasn't that long, but, you know, for hours. And a lot of people were like, nah, it's okay. 
So he didn't make a lot of money. And the um, the 55, there were 55 runners who finished um, out of 199, which, you know, is really pretty remarkable. But these 55 men were like broken. I mean, they were, they, you know, this was not a race exactly at this point. First of all, the, the way you won this race was, you know, the shortest amount of time that you could, I mean, it was a race for sure. Um, every day, you know, you would log in your time. So from town A to town B, you know, if you got there in four hours and somebody else got there in seven hours, well, that person with four hours, they're a lot, you know, they're in great shape. So Andy Payne, you know, after, after a while, uh, I think like Ohio, you start adding it up and looking at everything and you're like, huh, Andy Payne's probably going to win this. You know, um, if he keeps it up, you know, if he doesn't break a leg or something or get hit by a car, which that happened to some people, um, you know, he might just win this. So everybody knew that Andy Payne was going to win. That was another thing, too. Um, John Salo came in second. Well, everybody knew he was going to come in second. You know, again, the only thing that could really trip you up was like shoelace at this point. You know, so, um, so yeah, it just it wasn't uh, it wasn't much of a moneymaker for C.T. Pyle. And, um, you know, it just, uh, which to me adds to the story in a lot of ways. I mean, sure, it would have been great if it was like, you know, the movie Breaking Away or Rocky and you've got, you know, the, you know, suddenly at the last minute, Andy Payne, you know, passes John Salo and wins the money and all, but no, he just, it was, it was an endurance, you know, fad and, and it was an endurance, I mean, competition. And so, yeah, it, it wasn't like, oh my God, who's going to win? It's like, can they continue running and at that point yeah you just you kind of knew Andy Payne would win so um but uh yeah Will Rogers I haven't mentioned him you know he was he was he covered the race he was along in the race for quite a while um it was uh yeah it was a big I mean it was a big deal uh for the country but at the same time, I think everybody kind of forgot about it, you know. Uh, it was, and if you think about it, you know, there was no TV. Um, you had radio, but even radio was not yet a huge thing. Um, so it was really, you know, you read about it in the newspaper, and you went you, to see it, you know, and and then it's gone, it's done, you know. So it's like one really interesting day if you're in the middle of, you know. Um, Indiana, Illinois, and you see this race come through town. Of course, if you're uh, in Florida, you don't see it. Uh, if you're in Texas, you don't see it. So I think it was, yeah, it was kind of an easy, when I think about it, it's, you know, you can see why people did forget about it after a while. So if, if he didn't make a bunch of money sort of off of this, which seems like he kind of, I don't know, broke even at, at best, right? Maybe even less than mm -hmm. that, right? Um, but it, 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 he, he at least was able to give everybody their prize money, which... You know, I found kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder the if there were people who even doubted that that prize money would actually be uh, uh, oh, made good. Yeah. They did. Yeah, nobody thought he was going to. They were going to get it. But I think he was like, "Well, if I'm going to do this again," and he did. Um, you know, he was like, "I'd better come up with the money," and and he did. So. So all right. So then, I guess the the big question then is why try it again in 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 29? And again, to put this in context, this is. Uh, that this race, the original race, happens uh, in March and uh, through May of 1928. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing it's around the same time uh, the next year. Um, 
But uh, I'm just curious as to why he tries it again. Uh, a couple of different sort of tweaks to it, right? In New York to L.A. versus the other way around. Yes. Yeah. And I think I think a lot of it, you know, I'm sure he thought, well, I, you know, we did it. It didn't, you know, wasn't pretty, but we did it. And now that I've got all the kinks worked out, it'll go great. Um, and, you know, it's funny. I didn't write about it much in the book. I mean, I mentioned it, of course. Um, but I didn't do a whole lot of research on the race because I was kind of, I guess, like C.C. Pyle, a little deluded and thought, oh, I'll, I'll, you know, this book is going to be such a bestseller that I'll write a sequel. And, you know, I'll write a sequel about the race because the 1929 race was pretty crazy, too. But um, and if, I, if memory serves me, they did not get their prize money at the end of that one, which would explain why there wasn't a 1931 but also, there wasn't one in 1930 because the Great Depression started, and you know that just kind of messed everything up. But um, but yeah, I, I think he decided to do a second one because he really did want to do an annual one, and he, you know, he did think that uh, it was going to go a lot better. And as I recall, I think C.C. Pyle broke his leg on the second race. Um, you know, lots of yeah, lots of things went wrong in that second race. Um, but uh, but yeah, it, you know, and then so after the 1929 uh, transcontinental race, he he gives up, <laughs> and he pretty much goes back into sort of obscurity. You know, he tries to do, um, um, you know, tries to make money. I think he starts working for a, a some movie studio, but you know, doesn't have a, it doesn't go you know very far or anything. But he did. Um, he he married his fourth wife after the race, and there's a really interesting thing. I'll, um, trying to look at my notes here and see what her name. Um, oh, well, it's like El Elvina. Well, yeah, I'll she's, tell some, you. Some, she's, she's like famous. a famous comedian or something, right? Yes, she's a comedian, and um, nobody's. Elvia Allman. Really I think it's Elvia Allman. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah. No, last name is actually Tortolot. Right. Elvia right. Allman Tortolot. Yes. Easy to say. Yeah, you say every, it three times fast. Go ahead. Everybody knows her. Um, if if you watch, I love. If you've ever seen, I love Lucy. She's the foreman on the uh, the chocolate factory. Um, so she's the one who, you know, shouts faster, faster. And Lucy and Ethel are like grabbing the chocolates and stuffing them in their mouths. Well, that's her. She was also Selma Prout on a, the Petticoat Junction. So I find Sure. I think she's also on the Beverly Hillbillies too. Yeah. So she was quite well, yeah, uh, yeah. well known. You know, I mean, not hugely famous, but, you know, but I think everybody remembers that most people of at least. I don't, you know, maybe my daughters don't, you know, they've barely watched I Love Lucy. But, um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, in a way, she became kind of more famous than C.C. Pyle, which I, you know, it's kind of sad. But, um, but yeah, he was an amazing guy. I mean, um, you know what? And I, this is now, here's a very interesting story. I've been uh, just completely, and I'm, and I'm just quickly doing some quick research, what I didn't know. Uh, she, uh, I've been actually watching old episodes of uh, The Odd Couple because uh, on, on this uh, mm -hmm. Decades channel, they've been uh, running the entire series uh, in order uh, over the last number of, uh, of weeks. And uh, it turns out that she appeared as Oscar Madison's mother in one episode of The Odd Couple. Uh, if you remember the uh -huh. Greek the uh, Greek restaurant uh, belly dancer episode, <laughs> she was uh, the she was the mom of uh, of 
uh, Oscar's affectional, uh, affectionate uh, uh, towards uh, her her daughter. Hilarious. I, yeah, I love the Odd Couple. Who would know? Check that out. <laughs> but but it's it does speak, I guess, to 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 Pyle's sort of uh, uh, you know flair for promotion and, and the business, if you will. Of course, by the business, I mean the industry, as Paul Schaefer would have said on Letterman. Um, uh, he, he clearly enjoyed, I think, sort of being part of that sort of spotlight, even if he wasn't in that spotlight. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, I feel bad for him in a lot of ways because he would have probably like he would have killed it now, you know, with social media um, and just well in banking, you know, I mean, he had a lot of money problems. And but, you know, now with, you know, digital money and Zelle and, you know, all you know, getting money to people fast and all that. I mean, he probably if he was around today and wanted to host it. And uh, I mean, I'm sure he could, you know, without losing his shirt, without losing his reputation. But yeah, back then, 1928, um, it was just a lot harder. But that's why it's kind of amazing to not only to him, but all the runners that they were able to do what they did, you know, with those, you know, with the shoe wear of 1928 and the roads um, and the weather. I mean, this was over, you know. March, April, May, most of May, it ended uh, May 26th. And, you know, they they were rained on and snowed on and uh, I think windstorms and, um, you know, running through the desert. They ran through just about everything. And, and, you know, a couple runners had nervous breakdowns. A couple runners were hit by cars. Knees gave out, you know, and, and just the broken, fallen arches. I mean, Charlie horses. It just... I can't imagine what it must have been like or i can't imagine that's so fun <laughs> but um you know and and you yeah you get to your tent well and that was an in- interesting thing too that if like somebody like andy payne if you got to your town like you know the the de- the finish line at 3 p.m we've well, got the rest of the day at least to recover um and then the next day you get out you know get a good night's sleep next day you get up and you're able to run if you were coming in at midnight, as some of these runners were, and at that point nobody's there, no cheering crowds for you. I mean, everybody's gone to bed, but you know the the referees there, and you know count your time. You're staggering in at one, you know, day, midnight or one a.m., and you're getting up the next morning like six or seven. You're in even worse shape. You know, you've had no time really to recover, and then you're running again. So, yeah, that, I mean. Yeah, if you got ahead in this race, you're gonna do. You probably were gonna do pretty well. And if you didn't do so well, you know. And it's amazing that a lot of these people they knew that they weren't going to win. But I think you know when you when you get to somewhere like Missouri, Illinois, you know, you just think I can't stop now. You know, like Norman Cotalupi was gonna run to Cleveland, but then he's like, you know, I'll never forgive myself if I don't try to finish this. All right, two so, two two, qu- two yeah. questions two questions to kind of sort of uh, bring it home here. I, I um and there's sort of more overarching ones and more I guess sort of personal thoughts and and uh, your own sort of uh, uh, ideas of the trajectory of this. So number one, I guess, is why did sort of this ultra marathon or or, or cross country kind of thing um. Uh, takes so long, I guess, to kind of be rediscovered. I mean, the, the 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 idea, it seems to me, didn't sort of even come back into people's uh, consciousness until the 60s or the 70s. Um, why, 
you know, if it was such an interesting concept and if not for, you know, the, the economic challenges of a, of a Great Depression, um, I'm just curious as to why it took so long, I guess, for uh, the idea of, of doing something along these lines again took so long to come back into uh, possibility and reality. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I don't think we've ever really done anything quite like this, you know, since then. I mean, in terms of, you know, a transcontinental race, I, I'm sure there have, I think there have been, but nothing, you know, well, on that running, scale. I guess the point but, is, I think running has become such a, a you know, in the 70s, wow. certainly it was, it was a boom and a rediscovery, yeah. I guess, of running and, and uh, the, the shoe manufacturing and sneakers and all that stuff, right? Yeah, I see what you mean. Um, I do think that, well, shoe, I th- I'm sure that shoe manufacturing probably helped a lot. Like, I mean, the running interest was, it was always there. I mean, it was there before uh, CC Pyle. There were, you know, professional runners. The uh, the Boston Marathon, you know, was around. But you had like 168 people, I think, you know, it was a typical in 1927. I think there were 168 runners. Um, and now, you know, when there's not a pandemic, you have like 10, you know, like 40,000, 50,000 people. You know, I mean, that's a lot of people. Um, you know, running one marathon. Um, so I, I think that, uh, but I think, you know, as, as shoes developed and got better, I mean, that obviously helped. I think one reason, um, well, like the you, you know, the Bunyan Derby was sort of forgotten and, and all these endurance fads sort of petered out was, you know, the Great Depression. If you, I mean, it's interesting. I was sort of bookended the 1920s by, you know, World War One, the pandemic, you know, the influenza, and then, you know, you've got these these great 1920s, and then suddenly that Great Depression, then World War II. So by the 50s, you've got, you know, America's normal again, you know, and you, you don't have, I mean, you have the Korean War, but it's, you know, on a much better kind of even keel. 1960s, of course, were rough, but, and then the 1970s, actually, if you think about it, I mean, we're probably, you know, I mean, even though, yes, there were, you know, strife going on. I mean, it was a pretty sedate decade. Well, Vietnam War. All right. There was no good time, no peaceful time. But anyway, I don't know. Somewhere in the 1970s, as you said, um, you know, yeah, running became a huge thing. And as I mentioned, uh, you know, sort of in a rambling thing earlier, the, you know, women started running the Boston Marathon or and marathons in general, um, you know, in the 1960s, 1970s. So then you you know, you had both genders running, and uh, yeah, and I, I do think the sneakers probably just, you know, I mean, and you just had gurus, I can't remember some of their names, but I mean, there were, yeah, some big, you know, uh, influential people sort of promoting the sport, and um, yeah, I think it also, yeah. I think it also, I think it also speaks to, it's, it's, um, it's an inexpensive sport, right, you, a pair of shoes, and yeah. And yourself and running and it's very solitary and it's your own sort of pushing yourself. There's no sort of teams and leagues to organize and all that kind of stuff. And I, I think that's kind of I, I, maybe I'm just struggling for I, I'm just curious as to no, I, the spectacle I, of all of that and how how seemingly uh, intriguing it was and the stories and the people that were attracted to it. It just sort of it's just sort of sort of lay fallow for years and years and years and years. Now the idea of ultra marathons and triathlons and Ironman, all that stuff, right. Is, is, you know, is still amazing. And obviously there's money and, and, and 
promotion and marketing around all of that kind of stuff. But I just I just find it interesting that that nobody in the many decades since really never attempted something spectacle wise, especially given now media being so, you know, uh, in television in particular. Right. That um, and who knows, maybe it'll, it will come back again because, you know, the, as Barnum says, a sucker born every minute. So I'm just it's yeah, interesting yeah. to me that it would just it would. It, and and I think this adds to the legend of this story. It's like you can't believe something like this would have happened just in general, let alone in the, in the specific time of it. Be, and mm-hmm. Largely because it hasn't really come back in any way, shape or form of, of similar similar variety. Yeah, and you know, you raised an interesting point earlier about the insurance. I mean, back then, I I don't remember coming across too much about insurance. I don't. The, the insurance industry was still pretty, you know, kind of in its infancy back then. You had it, but um, but I don't think you insured, you know, things like that. But today, you'd have to, and you know, and they ran on roads where there were cars, you know, people driving, but you know, there weren't a lot of cars. But today, I mean, you couldn't do that. You couldn't, you know, on Route 66 or any route. I mean, you could, but you'd be like, you know, you'd close it off to the public. Um, And they didn't do that back then. So, I mean, that would be yet another thing. I mean, it would be a really quite quite a challenge and very expensive to put together something like a transcontinental foot race now. I mean, I, I'm, I think you could do it, but because um, it's not like, you know, you, you close off the whole road for the whole country, you know, like one giant freeway, you know, for months, you just, you know, day by day, you'd close off sections. But, um, but yeah, it, it was, it was a huge undertaking back then. And yeah, I don't think it's, I think it's appreciated now by the people who hear about it, but yeah, sadly, it's been kind of forgotten. All right, here's a here's the last question. What where's the where's the movie uh, for all of this? Where's the, I mean, it seems like this is great stories and drama. I know there was an attempt, I guess, in the mid or early 1980s to do a Broadway play around it. I think Paul Newman's name was attached to it. Jerome Robbins was supposedly uh, part of the production yeah, of it and all um, that stuff. But but it hasn't nothing nothing really of significance has really sort of hit the silver screen or big stage. I know, I know. <laughs> it's just sad. I mean. Um, I mean, you you would think that it would make a great movie, and I bet someday, you know, maybe they they will. But um, I don't know why it ha- hasn't happened. I mean, I, I did, you know, have a – I spoke to one producer before I even wrote the book. My agent uh, got me some in some talk with a producer, and, you know, and this person wanted um, – wanted to know about the love interest between Andy Payne and, and Vivian. And I think he thought there wasn't enough there or something. And, and, you know, he was, I, I think he wanted me to like, you know, play that up, but I was like, I can only play it up as much as, you know, it's history. And, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, I mean, I've, that's, that's never the, stopped I, anybody I before. I, I'm watching the yeah, crown exactly. right now. And, and, you know, the, 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 <laughs> the the uh, literary licenses probably taken with that of the royal family over the uh, decades, right? And yeah, the, the centuries, yeah. right? I, I mean, I, I will say uh, everything in the book that I've got, um, I you know, is everything came from newspapers, the the family members. You know, it, it's it's all like real. You don't have to make this story up. I mean, it was um, yeah. I mean, you really don't have to take any literary license. It it. You know, I mean, in that sense, C.C. Pyle got what he wanted because he really did put on an amazing show. And and there's, you know, there's heartbreak and humor. And 
I mean, it, 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 you know, and I'm not talking about my book. I mean, I'm just saying the history is incredible. You know, it's just a really rich history. And, and in a way, I think what's kind of cool is that it was, you know, uh, I mean, it was just meant to be a fun event. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's an, it's, it's an historical event. It's not like on par with, you know, the civil war, the great depression or, you know, the uh, throwing the tea in the Boston Harbor. I mean, it's, it's not, you could say it's not an important event, you know, but it's a really, just a really quirky, interesting glimpse of, you know, our history almost a hundred years ago and, you know, and what people would do for money and, um, and, you know, and a lot of these people, you know, I mean, they they were trying to get money for the right reasons. I mean, that kid who wanted to help his paraplegic father, I mean, you know, you just, you, and, and that's a nice little story too. Um, you know, I mentioned he, he was one of the four black runners and members of the black community after Will Rogers wrote about him. Um, they, they raised about a thousand dollars and gave it to him and, and another uh, black runner as well. And so, you know, I don't know, that was, it was just neat to, you know, hear stories like that. Um, but yeah, it was an amazing, just a really colorful, amazing time in history. All right. Amazingly interesting stuff. Uh, I uh, have a feeling that we're going to probably figure out some other ways to get into more of this story, both specifically around these uh, two races, uh, but also, frankly, the uh, the bigger story uh, around this C.C. Pyle guy, you know, uh, fi- uh, founding uh, the original American Football League and, and for the teams that were involved in it. Uh, his uh, sports uh, representation of people like Red Grange and and part of the Chicago Bears and the, the barnstorming and all that kind of stuff. But of course, this foot race, this Bunyan Derby thing, uh, many other stories yet to. And look, I, as I mentioned, I am just shocked. Uh, while there has been an attempt to do a stage play uh, around this, uh, yeah, you got to think at some point, uh, you know, especially in the era of streaming and, and sort of limited series and whatnot, uh, a, a, a story, uh, a television slash uh, video presentation uh, of this guy, perhaps these races uh, is uh, is in the offing. This is just seems to have all the ingredients of, uh, of just uh uh, crazy and uh, interesting personalities, and certainly the time, uh, the Roaring Twenties for sure. Uh, what a what a what a time it must have been for uh, for Pyle, uh, this these races, and uh, just sports generally, and just just the the the, the, uh, the the nature of what was going on around the country at that time before it all sort of came crashing to a halt. But uh, if you want to uh, dig into uh, to the story, the book is fantastic. Uh, it's called C.C. Pyle's Amazing Foot Race, the true story of the 1928 coast-to-coast run across America. It was by our guest, Jeff Williams. You can uh, find that wherever good books uh, are sold. It is published by Tantor Media. And, of course, you can search up uh, this episode on our website at goodseatstillavailable.com and uh, find this episode number 200. Uh, our conversation with Jeff Williams, and uh, there will be not only a description of this show and some great imagery and stuff around uh, the events that we talked about, but also a convenient link to this book uh, on uh, Amazon, which you can, um, 
obviously uh, by clicking that uh, that link through our website, you'll be giving us a few shekels of uh, of goodness to help keep our lights on. Uh, but then it also allows you to get the uh, the book in any kind of format that you want. You want it in uh, the original hardcover or paperback, uh, shipped via Prime, and, and get it to your doorstep within the next day or so. How about it as an audio book? You can get it in that format as well as in Kindle too, of course. Uh, all of those versions are available to you when you click uh, through our link to Amazon. And again, our website, again, is goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's where you're going to find all of our 200 or so episodes. Uh, we post them all there for you to uh, conveniently search and find and stream them if you, as you might like or download them. Of course, the easiest way to keep uh, abreast of what's going on with the show is to subscribe, for God's sakes. Just uh, go to Apple or, or Google Podcasts or Amazon or Pandora or, or uh uh, Spotify, you name them. There were, we're everywhere. You can basically find podcasts. Just, uh, just subscribe to us. It's simple. Uh, and uh, while you're doing that, why not give us a nice five-star rating and then some, uh, we appreciate that too. That helps our little algorithm find other people like you who might like this show. Uh, and we appreciate that, that to no end, of course, uh, on our website, of course, is uh, all of our social media links. You'll find us, uh, uh on Facebook. You'll see a, uh, a link to us on Instagram. We're at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, on Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. If you want to send us some email, go right ahead. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, you can also subscribe to our weekly email newsletter for off the website. Just click around. You'll find a convenient link to that. And um, gosh, I think that's about it. Jerry Payne, we thank you, kind sir, of course, for all your uh, twiddling of knobs and then some this week for this week's episode. Uh, Jerry Payne, audio excellence, uh, tip of the cap to, uh, you, sir, in the metropolitan Atlanta and, uh, a, uh, a humble bow in the general direction of just about every listener that we can see, uh, and, uh, feel in our internet, uh, uh, delivery mechanisms this week. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, we couldn't have done it without you on to 201 next week. Who knows what the topic will be, but it'll be fun. I assure you that. Thanks for listening until then. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.